Welcome, everybody. Good morning. It's good to be here with you. If we haven't met, hello. If we haven't met, my name is Charles Johnson. I want you to know uh, just how much of a joy it's been for us to be a part of, uh, of this community of faith. Um, if we haven't met, please come up and say hi to me. Uh, I'm eager to meet you. The, uh, many of you have been emailing me to say hi, and that's great. Please help me uh, place a, uh, a face with the name. That would be great. And if, and if you're joining us at home, please shoot me an email and, and to say hi. We're continuing our look at uh, Luke chapter 5. We're in the middle of, we're st- I guess we're still early in, in uh, Luke's, in Jesus's public ministry. And we're in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 39. And uh, we're right in the middle of what really is a section of controversy. There's story, there's story after story of opposition surfacing around Jesus. And Matt and I have been giving a lot of attention to that, of course. That, uh, that's important, just to examine the kind of man that he is as he, as he faces opposition and the way that he carries himself. But there's a danger behind this. Um, the danger is that we would learn to examine Jesus uh, exclusively through the lens of public conflict. And what I mean, is, what I mean by that is this that you don't really get a full understanding of who somebody is uh, by, by learning about what they're against from the negative. You also have to look at what they're building or what they're for. And what I want to talk about this morning with you is what is this uh, community of belonging that Jesus is building in this passage? There's a community of belonging. I'll read the passage and then I'll pray and ask God for help. And then we'll dig in together. This is Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 39. After this, he, Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, Levi rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He told them a parable, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he said, the old is good. Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be good and right and pleasing before you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Would you captivate us with joy at just what you did in this passage and what you're doing in our midst and help us to more and more reflect this community that you are building. 
for the sake of your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me start by clearing up some confusion I've come across over the last couple of weeks about where I went to school. Many of you know it was a point of conversation when I was candidating with you uh, that I'm a University of Virginia fan. But I'm a University of Virginia fan because I grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia, and uh, I didn't have the grades to go to that school, so I went down the road to a lesser-known school called uh, James Madison University, beautiful little college town in a mountain, just lovely campus. The, uh, the old joke is that JMU stands for just missed UVA, um, so that's just, just great. Um, <laughs> But the, the, um, the, it, there are a lot of reasons that you might go to that school, but I'm not kidding. I'm not joking. When one of, a big reason why people would even consider going to James Madison University was because of their award-winning, just truly excellent food service program there. I have it on good authority that it was a topic of discussion amongst high school seniors. And, you know, sometimes when people are thinking about what school that they want to go to, it really is as simple as that. The dining hall, or the D hall, was not to be missed. It was just amazing food. And the question uh, was never if you were going to go grab dinner at the, at the D hall. It was... Uh, when and with whom. And who you ate with, like nobody went alone. Who you ate with was just as important in a lot of ways as what you were eating because nobody nobody went alone to the D Hall. Um, And so uh, early on I heard of this phenomenon called the D Hall Stare. Now hang with me, I want to explain this to you because it was really uh, amazing. But um, the, the way it went was you would go in and you would get your food. And then you would, with your food and usually a backpack on you, um, you would emerge from where you grabbed your food into a massive room that was full of chairs and tables and people that were eating together and laughing. And it wasn't rare to see people stop and stare. They would look out over this massive room with eyes searching for who they were there to sit with. Do I belong in this place? Is there someone that I belong to or am I alone adrift on an iceberg in the middle of the ocean? And what's going on there? Why is it so important to figure out who you are eating with? Because eating together is one of our long-standing, most practiced ways that we use to cultivate a sense of belonging with each other. In many ways, and you'll find this true, look at your own life. In many ways, who you eat with is who you belong with. And one of the deepest longings of our heart is to find a place that we belong where we belong amongst a community of friends. And this desire that we have that's just deep in us affects so, is so powerful. It affects so many of the decisions that we make. And we're all asking the question, where do I belong? And in this passage, Jesus is eating dinner. He's at a feast with tax collectors and sinners. And this is so significant that it's got all kinds of people 
all kinds of riled up and really asking all kinds of questions of just what is he doing associating himself with these men? And, uh, and along the way, this text is really wonderful. This text is just chock full of explanations of what Jesus is doing and why he is there. Uh, it's fascinating. So we'll get a chance to look at that. And fair warning, if you, when you were reading this um, and you thought, what in the world is he talking about? Like wineskins and patches and old wine and new wine. I want you to know, I was asking the same question. Like when I first went through this, it's in my notes. I wrote it. I have proof. Uh, but I'm going to try and explain it to you, and I'm going to use just two points, okay? The first thing I'm going to talk about is the generous presence of God. The generous presence of God. And the second thing is the generous cause of God. The generous presence of God and the generous cause of God. Um, there are a lot of ways that you can think about generosity. One of the ways I'd like to define it here is really giving something valuable to an unlikely place. Giving something valuable to an unlikely place. And so uh, everywhere you go, when you look at these stories, everywhere Jesus goes, you get the sense that his presence is extremely valuable to them. He is giving them something valuable when he's around them. People are hunting him down from all over the place. And he's really moving from town to town and getting caught in the countryside. And he's healing people of their diseases. He's restoring people. But he's also teaching them important things about the coming kingdom of God that are just really compelling to them. And people are seeking his presence out. Because it's so valuable to them. There's a story that was in chapter 4. You may remember that. But he was going to leave, a t- leave the town. And the text says that um, they would have kept him from leaving. So that's Jesus giving something valuable to the people. But what about the unlikely place? Well, it happens right away in this text. That Jesus goes up to a tax collector named Levi and calls him to follow him. Now look, Jesus is very generous with his presence. But you see that he's very strategic about who he invites into his inner circle to follow him around and become one of his disciples. And if you were trying to build a religious movement in Judea amongst Jewish people, a tax collector would not have been a popular choice. Why? Because tax collectors were people that you avoided. And they were well known. A general way to understand them was to see them as traitors. These were Jewish people that were taking money from Jewish people and and giving giving it to the uh, occupying Roman government. And so they were taking this money. They were seen as sympathizers to Roman occupation. But even more so, it was just well understood just how... um, how they would exact more tax than they were due in order to skim off the top for their own personal gain. And so they were seen as traitorous criminals in some way that selfishly advanced on their own at the expense of their own people. And so tax collectors were reviled in a lot of ways. They were seen as people who, who uh, they were there to avoid. And then what you see is Jesus extending the generosity of his presence in the unlikeliest of places, in that he now is appearing at a feast that's full of tax collectors. And so what I want you to see 
is, uh, is that um, Jesus, this is the seed. These are the seeds of an unlikely, strange community that Jesus is building amongst them. Because just think about how awkward this would have been for Peter and James and John. Those guys, we saw them, when last we saw them, they were fishing on the Sea of Galilee. These are fishermen. And the Sea of Galilee is a royal sea. You pay taxes in order to fish on that sea and make your living. And so it just wouldn't be surprising if these guys recognize, they may have stood at Levi's booth and paid him taxes. But certainly they would have known that uh, some of those tax collectors that were there at the feast with them. And they would have looked at this elaborate feast in this house that they were in and be thinking about how maybe that stuff was purchased with some of their own money. There would have been an unseen but very real tension in that room as Jesus calls Peter, James, and John into association with Levi and his friends. And all of them only have one thing in common. Their relationship to Jesus. So he's forging an unlikely community amongst those who simply just know him. It, was, uh, it wasn't long ago, it was probably a few weeks ago, I was talking with a pastor friend of mine. And uh, you ever want to know what pastors talk about when they're talking with each other? Um, It was a thrilling conversation. We were talking about how we like to organize our weeks. um, How we like to take a couple hours outside of like the normal responsibilities that we have. And just spend some time like organizing our to-do list and looking at our calendar and trying to make it do the things that we want to do. I got to tell you, it was the most exciting conversation about developing administrative skills that I probably have ever had. I thought that was funnier when I wrote it, but... <laughs> but at some point in the conversation, I remember saying to myself, look, if I don't do this, um, then I'm just going to be uncomfortable all week because I won't know what's coming and, and what I'm facing and what I have to do. And uh, it wasn't long. I was driving away somewhere, and it wasn't long before I thought to myself, how hard am I willing to work to keep myself from ever being uncomfortable? And then looking at a calendar full of appointments with people, how hard am I willing to work in order to keep myself from interacting with people who make me uncomfortable? I don't know if you're on Facebook or not. I am. I find it more and more uncomfortable to be on Facebook. But everybody knows that the the best thing about Facebook is the unfollow button, right? At some point, it's just really helpful for us to, to, to acknowledge to ourselves and maybe to each other just how hard we work to engineer our lives in such a way that we interact with only the people that we love or the people that we enjoy being around, the people that might make us comfortable or the people that share our values. That we work very, very hard at building communities with each other where certain people are welcome and certain people aren't. And that we're all playing this game, asking and seeking to answer the question, who's in and who's out? 
Listen, that is a game we've been playing since we were kids on a playground and we were building a new secret club that only certain people could be a part of. And we have been, we have been trying to determine that for ourselves and for others every day of our life. Who, answering the question, who's in and who's out? And what Jesus is doing is he is drawing, he's saying, if you know me, I'm going to pull you into community with people that you probably wouldn't choose for yourselves. And you will be a part of that because simply you love me and I'm calling you to associate with others. And he will do this over and over and over again as we look at his ministry. If you're in relationship to Jesus this morning, I want you to understand that often what that means is that you have committed yourself to a community that you really have zero control over. If you look to Jesus with eyes of faith, then you are united to him in your faith. You have a union with Christ. And you stand forgiven because of that union. You stand free because of that union. And each one of you, by your faith, you can stand confident before God because of your union with Christ. But it also means that you and I stand side by side in our unity with others who also share that union with Christ. And we are being called by Jesus over and over and over again to shed the artificial parameters that we construct around the, around the communities that we build and extend a warm embrace to people that we probably wouldn't have chosen for ourselves. How does that work? How could we embrace something that's so counterintuitive to us? By simply remembering how wonderful it is that Jesus moved toward us when we were unlovely. In this passage, Jesus says, I am here for the sick and the sinners. And if you are here in faith this morning, it's because you have a chance to marvel at the reality that Jesus moved toward you for your redemption. And see, you get the opportunity, we all get the opportunity together to bear witness to the generous presence of God that was given to us as we seek to inhabit it with those around us. So that is the generous presence of God. And it's so important for us to comprehend it because it helps us understand the generous cause of God here in this passage. Well, let me get at it this way. Let me, let me try it this way. Um, so it's football season and, uh, and for a UVA fan, it's a long, hard fall as we wait for basketball season. But, um, uh, I, I don't know about you and I don't think you could be a football fan or any kind of sports fan. Uh, if you're not a sports fan, you're probably someone who likes to laugh at sports fans because one of the most absurd things we like to do when we're watching a game is to become really, really judgy. Um, we start yelling at the TV. Is anybody else guilty of that? Where we start second guessing coaches and players and, uh, and all of that. One time I, uh, was so angry over what was going on. My son, who I think was four or five at the time, looked at me and said, Daddy, you need to have a better attitude. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, son. You remember that? Yes, he does. It was a total meltdown. Um, But who are the least, uh, who are the, who are the, um, who are the most unpopular people on the field in any game? It might be a player, it might be a coach, but usually it's a referee, right? 
usually they're the easiest target for all of us. And they have a tough job. I don't, I don't um, envy what they do. But it is simply easy to dislike someone who points fingers at people and tells them what's right and what's wrong. Who belongs and who doesn't and who's playing within the rules and who isn't. And we shouldn't be surprised as we look at these communities that Jesus is interacting with that it has its own share of referees. Okay, I've never seen a community that didn't have referees. I do think religious communities in some way seem to attract more than its fair share. But we all have people that are around us that are kind of pointing and making declarations of what's okay and what's not okay. And in this case, these guys are all riled up about Jesus uh, having this meal and, and, uh, and they don't ask a question. It's very, it's, very, um, it's, it's very interesting what they do. They don't ask a question, why are you doing this? They just come with an observation. And this observation really is just intended to cut. What did they say? They said they're comparing them. They're comparing what Jesus and his disciples are doing. They're saying the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. The disciples of John, they are fasting often, but you are eating and drinking. These people are offering prayers and you are associating with sinners. This is a, what, essentially what they're saying is that you claim to be religious and speak for God and exercise power in his name, but you don't look or act like someone who's religious at all. They had established definitions of what that looked like. And they're, they're uh, challenging Jesus and his disciples because in their minds, they don't measure up to these standards that were formed. You hear that? They're making declarations of who's in and who's out, right? And so Jesus says, uh, I mean, it's, Jesus' answer is really interesting. It's somewhat cryptic. And uh, there is, like, we could spend a sermon on each one of the things that Jesus said. And so don't worry, I'm not going to do that. But, um, but here's what I want to say. Je- he, Jesus is saying that he, being there is a cause for celebration, a cause for understanding, and a cause for warning. Okay? A cause for celebration, a cause for understanding, and a cause for warning. The first piece of Jesus' answer is simply to say that his presence is a cause for celebration. And he likens it to when a bridegroom is partying after his wedding. So if you, um, if you got married in those days, you didn't go on a honeymoon, you had a multi-day feast party happening. It was an open house drop-in party that lasted for days at your house. And uh, people would come and go, and there was just lots of fun to be had. It was a great celebration. And there's a rabbinical uh, ruling that said that during that time when the party was going on, that the bride and the bridegroom and all who were attending to them were exempt from the observance of any religious practices and, quote, anything that would lessen their joy during this time. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the bridegroom and I am here. And it is appropriate that this is a time of celebration. And to understand me, you've got to understand that this is a time of celebration. There's coming a time when I will be taken away. 
And there will be fasting during that time. But right now it's only appropriate that I'm gathering with people and enjoying this time with them. And they're enjoying this time with me. Because something special is happening. And this is the cause for understanding. Because Jesus starts telling parables at this point. And, uh, and he says something new is happening. Something new is happening. And he says uh, a new piece of fabric wouldn't be put on an old garment. That would ruin both of those things. It wouldn't make sense to, to add something new to something that's old. And you don't pour uh, new wine into old wineskins. Because the way it worked was you put this new wine, it would ferment. It was alive and, uh, and it would ferment. And it had to stretch out these wineskins. And the old wineskins had lost their elasticity. So they couldn't expand. They would burst is what was going on. And he's saying that something new is happening. And to understand Jesus, you need to understand that something new is happening. And, uh, and then um, when something new arrives, the old becomes less useful is what he's saying. And this is where we see a warning. He says there will be those who so adore the old wine that they don't see any need or desire for the new wine. There will be those who are so... Um, used to the old way of things that it will be very hard for them to accept and embrace this new thing that Jesus is doing in their midst. And there will be those that who are just like this men who find the keeping of the law and the maintaining of religious practices um, so attractive to them that they find the message of Christ less compelling. And that's really what gets at the heart of this complaint. Because, listen, for centuries they have been taught that you can find assurance for your sins by keeping the law and then availing yourselves of the sacrificial system when you broke the law. And there is a tremendous amount of grace in the system that God established with his people. I don't want to give you any impression otherwise. But as we continue to follow Jesus along his journey to the cross, we will watch a man who kept the law perfectly. And... When we watch his sacrifice on the cross, our gaze is set on the one who fulfilled everything the sacrificial system pointed to. He doesn't discard these things. He fulfills them. And he says to you and me that if you want to know God, if you want to know the joy of belonging in community with God that you were meant for, the grace that you need is simply found in him. That God's kingdom will not be populated by the religiously proud, but with those who humbly look to Jesus in faith for the forgiveness of your sins. And Jesus promises another gathering. That there will be another time of feasting and wine and good food and each other. That there will be another gathering, another meal. And this meal will be called the Wedding Supper of the Lamb. This is the promise that we have in Revelation that God gives to us. That that all of the feasts that we enjoy this side of heaven, 
That every time we take this meal together, it is pointing to that feast that Jesus promises for us. A pastor I really admire in our denomination wrote a book recently called The Beautiful Community. I don't know him well, um, but his name is Erwin Ince. I'd encourage you to check out this book. But this is what he says in this book. And I want to dare you not to allow your imagination to flare up as I'm reading to you this description of this, uh, the wedding supper that he offers you. He says, can you picture the nations coming to feast with joy? Some approaching with moccasins on their feet, others dressed in kenta or saris or overalls, still others with turbans on their heads, and the one raising the glass for the toast is the bridegroom. He speaks and reminds us of how he told the disciples at the Last Supper that he would not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when he drank it new with them in his Father's kingdom. The new day has fully, hear that? The new day has fully arrived, and as he raises the glass, he's not looking up in the sky, but rather, he's looking everyone in the eye with a loving gaze that communicates, I see you, I made you, I redeemed you, you're welcome at my table as queens and kings, a kingdom of priests. Now, let me close by asking you one question, and then I'll be done. Do you know that Jesus is pleased with the tax collectors and the sinners that he's assembled at his table? If he's the bridegroom, then you're the bride. And there's only one reason you're there. It's because he wants you there. He adores you. His desire is for you. And everything he did, he did so that you could one day take your rightful place at his table as a beneficiary of his great love and his grace for you. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. O you who sacrificed yourself to us, O you who offer your grace to us, I pray that you would lead us in faith as we seek to trust you and hold us with the hope of that great day when we will feast together with you when you are physically present with us. And I pray that you would sustain us with your truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.